Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for January 12th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardile. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. Today, while the California Supreme Court mulls over a major question of tort liability, namely whether and to what extent California's public colleges and universities owe a duty of care to their students, we'll be joined by Sharon Arkin, an amicus supporting Catherine Rosen the UCLA student that brought a negligence action against the school after being viciously stabbed in a chemistry lab by classmate Damon Thompson, whom the university's medical center had treated for paranoid delusions and possible schizophrenia. Rosen claimed that UCLA failed to do enough to appreciate, foresee, and prevent against the harm Thompson posed, but a split second district panel set back her negligence suit by holding no duty, be it a general tort duty, a special relationship duty, a negligent undertaking duty, was owed by UCLA to Miss Rosen. Among other things, the majority emphasized the heavy burden posed by a finding that colleges are duty-bound to keep their thousands of adult students safe at all times. Justice Perlis dissented, advocating for a middle way of sorts by which a limited tort duty might be found in certain circumstances, such as the ones in this case. And Miss Arkin, whose amicus brief traces the fluctuating history of university supervision of and tort liability for student safety, seconds Justice Perlis's approach. She'll explain why when she joins us in just a few minutes. But first, let's get to our opening briefs. Another opinion concerning California's public institutions issued from the First District Court of Appeal on Tuesday. Here, a unanimous panel determined that public employees in three counties might have a viable constitutional claim against a state law that, in the wake of 2008's financial crisis, reduced the employees' retirement benefits. As reported by our own Matt Blake, the majority of unions supported the 2013 measure meant to ensure the solvency of the state pension system. The legal challenge is issued nonetheless, and a previous related case already pens before the California Supreme Court that won another First District Court of Appeal ruling largely approving of the Public Employee Pension Reform Act as a reasonable solution to a thorny problem. But Tuesday's opinion, written by Justice Reardon, departed from the prior panel's more sanguine view as to the reductions the act affected to fully vested retirement rights and remanded the case for closer consideration on that point. The effects this panel's divergent view may have on the state high court's approach to their pending matter remains to be seen. A ruling from California's northern district that's likely to find its way soon into appellate court has temporarily enjoined enforcement of the Department of Homeland Security's September order rescinding the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, program. The agency's action last fall was justified officially, at least in part, on the basis that the program, affording work permits and other protections to a class of immigrants who arrived in the U.S. as children, was an unlawful executive overreach when Barack Obama signed off on it in 2012. Judge William Alsop questioned that basis for DHS's order in September and also reasoned that President Trump's tweets around the same time, ostensibly supporting DACA, suggested a preliminary injunction was in the public interest. The case on the merits proceeds. Niels Frenzen is a professor of law at USC Gould School of Law and the director of the school's immigration clinic. He joins us now with more on the ruling. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So this case in, in the Northern District of California has, has garnered some attention over the past few months as it's uh, taken a trip up and down the, the federal judiciary on a, on a preliminary matter as to whether the government needed to, to fill the administrative record. Um, but but now makes news after a more substantive ruling issues, uh, not one fully on the merits, but but still a, a pretty substantive one that will enjoin the effect of the Department of Homeland Security's uh, rescission of the, the 2012 Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, the, the DACA program. Um, 
which was rescinded last September by Elaine Duke as acting secretary of the DHS. Um, before we get into unpacking the, the ruling a bit here, could you just walk me through who the plaintiffs are here? There's a cohort of them from across the country, some parties from California, including the, the UC system, um, also some, some states from afar, uh, Maryland, Maine, Minnesota among them, and also some, some DACA recipients. Um, and what exactly are their claims? I see there's some Administrative Pro- Procedures Act claims along with some other constitutional challenges. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, there. You know, these are five separate actions that have been, uh, you know, assigned to be coordinated and heard jointly uh, before Judge uh, Alsop in the in the Northern District, and they raise, you know, by and large, you know, very similar in many respects, identical causes of action. Uh, you know, there are a few different, you know, tweaks here and there where there's some different uh, 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 charges, uh, you know, allegations made. But basically, these are APA, Administrative Procedure Act, causes of action. Uh, there's some constitutional claims um, regarding deprivation of, of, of property and liberty interests without due process um, and uh, an equal protection allegation. Um, and then one or two of the plaintiffs are also alleging an equitable estoppel uh, argument. But basically, this is, as you said, the state of California joined by a few other states, um, the, the city of San Jose, the, the county of Santa Clarita, um, and some uh, individual uh, DACA holders who uh, will be, you know, are being affected by the termination of the DACA program. Okay, and maybe just to parse out that AP, the APA claims just a, a tiny. A bit more. Am I correct to read that there are sort of two different APA claims? One being that there, the decision in September was arbitrary and capricious, or not in accordance with the law, and also a sort of a, a independent APA action, a cause of action based on there not being a, a period for notice and comment. Correct, and and those are the you know those are the two APA claims: the the arbitrary, capricious, uh, uh, abuse of discretion argument is based upon. The uh, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security's uh, uh, explanation when she terminated the DACA program in September that she was doing so because uh, the DACA program was uh, not authorized by law. Um, and uh, Judge Alsop has found, at least for purposes of the preliminary injunction, uh, that that was a faulty, a faulty legal premise. Um, and then the, and then if, if a uh, agency action is based upon a, an erroneous legal uh, conclusion, that per se is generally going to be considered, a, you know, an arbitrary and capricious agency action. Uh, and then the second APA argument is the is the notice and comment procedure, and that's a, you know that's an interesting argument because that was the basis um, ultimately for the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals the other year. Um, uh, on which the Fifth Circuit ruled in a, you know, in an appeal of a preliminary injunction that the Obama administration, uh, uh, violated the law when it attempted to expand the DACA program and create the related, you know, DAPA program, the Deferred Action for, for Parents of Americans. Um, and the Fifth Circuit's ruling was based at least in part on a APA notice and comment procedure. And so the plaintiffs in the in the northern district litigation have basically taken that argument and said, okay, if you're saying that the that this is a substantive rule that requires APA notice and comment uh, to create um, uh, APA notice and comment is required uh, when you go through the dismantling process. 
Great. Then uh, we can go ahead and, and, and jump into the ruling. It's a, it's a thorough on a 50-page ruling. It, it comprises two two main pieces. It, it it denies the government's motion to to dismiss the case altogether. But the the more salient piece of it is the the preliminary injunction um, enjoining enforcement of the the decision to rescind the DACA program. Um, you know. There are a variety of factors that, that weigh into a preliminary injunction decision. Probably most familiar to folks listening is the that plaintiffs must show a likelihood to to prevail on on the merits of the case. Uh, so you, you hinted at it a moment ago. On which of those claims did uh, Judge Alsop determine that the, the plaintiffs were had shown that that likelihood? And I suppose. How how likely uh, did the judge seem to think it was that uh, the the case the, the injunction should be granted because the case would likely go in favor of the plaintiffs? There there are two separate reasons on which uh, the court found likelihood of success on the merits, and and again one of them you know as you said as you know and as I was just saying was based uh, you know was the judge Alsop's conclusion that the rescission was based upon a flawed legal premise. Um, and and this premise is set forth in the acting secretary's uh, you know notice uh, terminating the program last uh, last September, um, and she relied upon attorney general sessions attorney general sessions uh, uh, you know similar uh, similar you know similar legal announcement that the that the DACA program was uh, was unlaw- unlawful and unauthorized by law. Um, the second. Uh, um, uh, basis for likelihood of success on the merits was a rejection by Judge Alsop of the um, of what what he characterized as a as a post hoc rationalization um, on the part of the government to try to explain why um, uh, why it had terminated the DACA program. Uh, but, but again, characterizing this as a post hoc ra- rationalization, which is not going to be acceptable in the APA context. The government's argument is that this was a uh, basically a necessary uh, step to avoid uh, litigation, that it was, if you will, a litigation strategy to avoid a threat by the state of Texas uh, to amend uh, the still pending litigation from several you know years ago in the in the Fifth Circuit, um, um, which when it was brought originally by by Texas and a coalition of, of other states did not attack the underlying 2012 DACA program, um, uh, but it was in the face of this threat to amend uh, the uh, the old complaint to go after the the 2012 DACA program. Uh, the, the the Department of Homeland Security claimed that they were uh, this was an appropriate um, uh, step to take on the part of the agency to avoid being sued, and that was rejected by by Judge Alsop. Okay, so the judge is is not saying that that this action exceeds the authority of of the president or the Department of Homeland Security, but just that if it is taken, it must uh, be done within the the strictures of the law, including the APA. And so, if you say we're rescinding this program because it was illegal in the first place, and in fact, it's not. Then that decision um, is by law sort of arbitrary and capricious. What was the, I guess, the the reason or the evidence proffered by the the judge or cited to by the judge to for for his proposition that in fact the 2012 uh, DACA program uh, being initiated was was supported by law. 
the government he was basically rejecting the you know the government's argument that Judge Alsop should rely or that the agency relied on the decisions of the uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court in the uh, Texas versus United States litigation challenge, you know, regarding the ex- expanded DACA program. But as, you know, many people will remember, the Supreme Court did not decide the Texas versus U.S. litigation because of Justice Scalia's death uh, and the court split 4-4. So we had nothing uh, of precedential value and there was no opinion issued uh, by the Supreme Court. And all we had uh, in the and, and all that exists in the record is a Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling, again, a 2-1 uh, panel decision uh, that was based upon that was a preliminary injunction ruling that was not even a ruling uh, on the merits. Um, and so Judge Alsop rejected the government's argument that this split decision at the Fifth Circuit and uh, the, the, the uh, preliminary injunction from the district court in the Southern District of Texas um, was sufficient, uh, you know, to indicate that the uh, that, that DACA was unlawful. Additionally, uh, the the what was at issue in the in the Texas litigation was not the DACA program. It was an expanded uh, program, and the legal arguments, at least uh, some of the key statutory arguments raised by the state of Texas, uh, challenging the expansion of the DACA program, have no applicability to the 2012 DACA program. Um, and so that was another basis on which uh, Alsop distinguished the uh, the Fifth Circuit litigation from uh, from the litigation here. In California. Um, now, uh, an- another piece of the, the preliminary injunction calculus is, is is competing equities and what might be in the overall public interest, whether or not to, to issue an injunction. And, and here there is another interesting twist in, a, in a, a, uh, an occurrence becoming more and more common in which the, the president's tweets are included in the court's rationale. Here, um, around the time the decision was, was issued, the president tweeted out things seeming to support the DACA program, saying, okay, Congress has six months to, to fix this or I'll step back in and querying to the, the Twitter sphere if anyone really wants to kick out the 800,000 um, folks that had gone through the process of getting a background check and, um, and getting their, their DACA uh, status. Um, I guess walk me through how, you know, t- Twitter's an, an interesting uh, new element in, in a lot of these lawsuits. It's sort of a place where a lot of pretty frivolous and, and banal comments are made, but also when the president makes statements on it, they are still the statements of the president. Um, what what are your thoughts on it, his tweets being used in this manner and to pretty significantly weigh or bear upon the court's outcome? Yeah, I mean, this is this is new ground, and, and it's certainly new ground because we have a president who is behaving very differently from any any previous administration but it's also new ground because we're dealing with social media you know that hasn't been around that long um uh, i think uh, i was just noticing the other day that it was the 10th uh, you know I, I believe it was the 10 year anniversary of the creation of the iphone uh this month and so um you know those of us who have smartphones forget sometimes that you know they haven't been around that that long and you know twitter's been around for you know for even less you know less of a period of time and so we've certainly had situations where courts will in the past look to statements of candidates and press conferences of 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 individuals after they take office for purposes of identifying motives or um you know other other relevant facts to a particular 
particular, you know, cause of action. Um, but with President Trump and with his extremely, you know, frequent use of Twitter, uh, you know, this is this is new territory, and there has been some dispute, and and certainly, I, you know, my understanding is that the government lawyers in this litigation before Judge Alsop have, you know, have argued that the court should not be looking at at the president's tweets. We've seen the tweets play out in the travel, the Muslim travel ban litigation as well, and both the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit have have looked to the to the to the tweets to the president's tweets to as as relevant evidence to determine among other things you know motivation behind uh, the you know the executive action so it's it's new territory in some respects um, uh, but you know in some respects it's not because candidates or or, or you know official statements uh, manifest themselves in you know in, in in old-fashioned ways as well as these you know these new ways okay just uh, one last one then I when rulings like this issue from forums that are pretty strategically chosen by plaintiffs that uh, to be sympathetic to their their causes, um, you know, and, and, and then impede or enjoin national policy, one one judge from one federal district, yeah, that that's the sort of thing that can really frustrate anyone supportive of that policy. I imagine in 2014, in the case you referenced, uh, when the Southern District of Texas enjoined uh, the Obama era policy, DAPA, um, folks there supportive of it were um, probably scratching their heads wondering how one district in the, the south of Texas could could stop national policy. And in the same uh, is, I'm sure, true here. Folks that you know, believe the, the, the executive and the agency here should have the power to to enact its policy. You know, when national policy is invalidated by the Supreme Court, it's, it's one thing, but uh, one district judge, a fairly modest single actor within the judicial branch blocking a, a national policy with fully the entire weight of the executive branch behind it, it does seem logically like a bit of a mismatch. I suppose. Why is it, is it that the system works that way? Is it just uh, the nature of having three co-equal branches of government? What What is the response to, to that concern? Well, it, it, I mean, it is an issue, and, and certainly district. It, it is something that the parties have, uh, you know, have disputed in, in this litigation. Um, and Judge Alsop, you know, in his in this preliminary injunction uh, order, you know, does specifically reference the, uh, you know, the Southern District of Texas case and, and the DAPA litigation and the fact that that was a nationwide um, uh, injunction. Um, but uh, in terms of controlling authority, again, uh, Judge Alsop has looked to the Ninth Circuit's recent decisions in the travel ban um, uh, litigation, um, where the travel ban uh, that was uh, the, the injunction of, of at least the early iterations of, of the travel ban, and I'm talking about the first and second uh, executive orders of, of, of uh, January and March of, of 2017, when they were enjoined in various parts, uh, those were nationwide injunctions entered by the uh, you know district court in, in Honolulu and and what the Ninth Circuit and other circuits have done is they've recognized that there is a, a public interest in having um, uniform nationwide immigration laws and especially when you're dealing with something like DACA or admission of non-citizens into the United States to have an injunction that would only apply in a certain part of the United States would would lead to tremendous confusion Fusion and uh, and you know chaos, frankly, um, and so that is the justification, and, and it plays out perhaps differently in the immigration context than it might in some other types of context uh, where the laws are are, are 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 federal and are you know there's a reason to apply them uniformly nationwide. 
so this is the the first of many opinions and chapters that will be written in uh, this ongoing litigation. Uh, but we can leave it there for now. Uh, Niels Frenzen from USC Gould School of Law, the director there of their immigration clinic. Thanks so much for hopping on the podcast to unpack this work. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Exactly to what extent colleges are responsible for the safety of their students has long been the subject of debate and litigation. After hearing arguments last week in the case of Regents vs. Superior Court, the State High Court is considering the issue again. Sharon Arkin is a principal at the Arkin Law Firm in Brookings, Oregon, and often weighs in as an amicus in California Supreme Court matters. She filed a brief in this case supporting the original plaintiff in the matter and joins us now. Sharon, welcome to the show. Thank you. You filed an amicus brief in support of the real party in interest in this case, um, argued last week before the California Supreme Court. That's Catherine Rosen, the case's original plaintiff who suffered a pretty gruesome attack while she was a student at UCLA, leading to um, her filing the suit against, among others, the, the school and the, and the regents. Um, maybe first walk me through the, the underlying facts here um, and how this suit came to be. Um, well, basically, the problem started with one of the other UCLA students, Damon Thompson, and he started in 2009 to have a lot of apparent psychological problems. He may have been schizophrenic, um, and the school was put on notice numerous times of issues with him, interactions with other students, accusations he made that students were talking about him and being mean to him and being racist, and he got into the UCLA student treatment system. Um, The appellate decision is a little bit vague about exactly what happened and how it happened, but basically he was determined to be probably schizophrenic. He finally got put on antipsychotic drugs. They were monitoring him, following up with him, but he kept sort of going off the reservation. And at one point, he actually had a, an altercation in his dorm, um, accusing a student of saying bad things about him. But in fact, it was audit- it was apparently auditory hallucinations, and nobody was actually saying it. Um, one thing the, uh, the appellate decision didn't cover was that he actually made specific threats, mostly against women, saying that basically if they if the school doesn't take care of this problem, he's going to have to do something that he's going to regret, but it's got to be handled. It's a, it's a little bit vague um, exactly what he was threatening or how he's threatening, but apparently Catherine Rosen was one of the specific people he was directing threats to, although she had never interacted with him, never spoken to him, never spoken about him. It was, again, his auditory hallucinations. So one day in chemistry lab class, Catherine was there doing her work. He was in the lab. Oh, and, and there had been numerous reports from teaching assistants and professors uh, to the universities higher up about the problems they were having with this student. And the, um, he just, she bent over to put some lab equipment away in a cabinet, and he came up behind her and literally slit her throat with a knife. And had she not been at UCLA with the medical center immediately available, she probably would have died. But they were able to get her there quickly and stop the bleeding. So she survived, but it was a horrific kind of incident. Certainly. And, yeah. and just to, to put a, a finer point on, on this question, um, is, it, is it clear, you, you said 
that the school and, and uh, parties within the school were fairly aware of a certain extent of the, the attacker's imbalances. Um, is it clear just to, to what extent? I know he had visited the school's psychological counseling center and seen some folks for help. Um, do you know sort of to, to, to what extent the school or, or uh, agents of the school were aware of his problems? They had very extensive knowledge. And it's it's sort of a two-part process at UCLA, apparently. They had one program for students for medical and mental health treatment, and he was in that program. Um, when there were issues about whether or not a student is violent or potentially violent, there's a different program um, to address potential violent students and how to deal with that. Um, the mental health side should have, we argue, but didn't refer Mr. Thompson to the violent protective protection side. And that's really where the, the loss, the heart of the lawsuit is that they, they knew he had made threats. They knew he had, was having severe mental and psychological problems. They knew that he was disruptive, but they never referred him to the to the violence prevention um, team that could have more carefully monitored what he was doing and how he was interacting and, and put more restrictions on where he could go and what he could do, not confine him. And that's one of the issues that comes up in, in the appellate decision that the, court, the, the school didn't have the right to confine him and nobody said that they did. They, you know, we were not, we're not talking about a 5150 admission um, involuntary admission to a psychological ward. But we're talking about student discipline in terms of how he can interact with other students and what he can do and what he can't do. And that's something that I think is really key to both the analysis in the Court of Appeal and what I think the analysis may be in the Supreme Court. Okay, so Ms. Rosen brings a negligence action, um, which does survive a motion for summary judgment at trial. Um, but the second district court, um, a split panel decides that uh, summary judgment should have been granted um, because on this question of laws to whether UCLA owed uh, a duty um, to, to keep Mr. Rosen safe in this particular situation, um, the panel found that UCLA did not owe such a duty. Um, could you describe to me their, their reasoning, the, the uh, split panel majority's reasoning there? They did seem to address and uh, to find not persuasive a many different theories of tort duty, like the general duty theory, landowner guest, um, negligent undertaking theories, um, special relationship um, theories. Um, could you walk me through why they felt none of those made it so that UCLA owed a, a duty in this case, such that they could kick it back down to the trial court and let jurors decide whether there had been uh, negligence? Um, what the majority opinion did was go through the six arguments, basically causes of action kind of analysis of duties or six duties that the plaintiff asserted on at the court of appeal and the first one was that there was a special relationship the the court of appeals majority decision pretty much just threw that out um kind of willy-nilly in terms of saying that while um elementary preschool elementary middle school and high school uh entities have a special duty with their minor um, students, 
and that creates a special relationship and imposes special duties on them to, to provide safety and protection. That duty falls away as soon as an 18-year-old goes to university or college or, or a higher-level school. Um, and that because this was that situation, she was in a university, she was over the age of majority, the school had no duty at all to protect her. Um, so there was no special relationship with her. Um, and then the next issue was premises liability, and that sort of combines with foreseeable circumstances claims that the plaintiff made. And in that context, the court said, well, that may apply, you know, when when there's third-party criminal activity at a bar. Uh, a bar may or may not, depending on the circumstances and the notice and the foreseeability, may, may or may not be liable for protecting the patrons from third-party criminal activity that occurs at a shopping center or a bar or a restaurant. But under California Supreme Court decisions, basically the Zelig decision, the California Supreme Court said those principles don't apply to um, a government entity. In other words, premises liability or third-party criminal conduct principles don't apply when it's a government entity involved. So they threw those out. Then there was the negligent undertaking, because UCLA here, as many universities now do, had set up these programs, set up the mental health part of the program and set up the violence prevention part of their program in order to overcome the problems with the mass shootings that were occurring on um, campuses starting in the early 2000s and going up to, you know, not very long ago, these keep recurring. And as part of their representations of safety, UCLA set up these programs and promoted that as a reason why students should come to UCLA, because they have these safety programs. Um, and the court, the majority opinion looked at that and said, well, Okay, even if, even assuming there's a negligent undertaking and even assuming that that, that they would have otherwise, this would have constituted a breach of that negligent undertaking. The problem is that, that Rosen didn't prove as part of her summary judgment motion that she, she relied on those representations. It's almost a fraud standard in negligent undertaking. One of the elements is that the person relied on the promises made when that undertaking was made by the, the defendant. The problem with that analysis, and we'll get that a, a little bit in when we talk about the dissent and, and the Supreme Court briefing, but one of the problems with that analysis is that even the Supreme Court has said in Angala versus Permanente Medical Group that where a, a misrepresentation is material, and I think this is a pretty material misrepresentation about the safety on campus, campus safety, where there, where there's a material representation, it can't, the jury can infer that, that reliance is presumed. So for, and, and the Angola case specifically said for purposes of summary judgment, you presume reliance if the misrepresentation is material. So in making this duty analysis, the appellate court 
majority opinion just said, well, there's no evidence she relied on it, so there can be no duty. And I think that was a misstep on with respect to that cause of action. Although, as we'll discuss, the dissent sort of went in a different direction. But I think that's the problem with that one. The next duty claim was the, the Tarasoff duty that the UCLA psychiatrist who was treating, or psychologist who was treating um, Mr. Thompson didn't warn Miss Rosen or others that he was getting to a violent, volatile stage and that they needed to be careful. Um, and the, the court said that there was just, you know, they, they, that just didn't show up, that he wasn't that violent, that that duty never got triggered. The facts didn't show that he got that far down the road. Um, next was a breach of contract claim, basically, that under the contract, the implied contract that the student had with the school, um, that included the term, the safety provision, that, that she would be kept safe or that they would act reasonably to keep her safe. Um, and they just said that there was, that was not an implied term of the contract and that they just said it. I don't, I disagree with it, but that was what they said. So they, they're the Court of Appeal, they win. Um, and the last one was some labor code statutes that I don't think any of us involved in the case really think had much merit in terms of establishing duty, although they, I think they're good evidentiary material at trial to help establish that UCLA, there were things UCLA should have done and didn't do. So that's pretty much where the majority went. They took a microscopic look at each claim of duty and said, no, that doesn't work, and no, that doesn't work, and no, that doesn't work, and threw them out one by one and ended up saying, no duty. And and in any kind of circumstance, there's no special relationship and no duty, so you can't win. There, There is a pretty strong dissent here from Justice Perlis, and this will begin to, to preview our discussion of the arguments in, in your amicus filing, uh, because importantly, uh, Justice Perlis is not saying the majority is wrong here because there's an absolute sort of general duty that UCLA must always uh, keep all their students safe at all times. He seems to say that there are maybe a more limited set of circumstances perhaps applicable here um, where duty uh, duty funding would be proper. Could you uh, describe to me his uh, uh, his reasoning? Yeah, and, and, and I think it's really important um, to note that Justice Perlis, uh the plaintiff, the amicus, everybody is saying there's not necessarily a duty just because the student goes to a university that there's not necessarily a special relationship, there's not necessarily a duty to keep them safe um, in every circumstance. If a university doesn't promote itself as providing student safety, if it doesn't market itself on that basis, if it doesn't make that promise implied or otherwise in its enrollment, Agreements, um, then then fine. The original duty still apply. I mean, the original principle that higher, you know, universities, colleges, higher education um, institutions don't automatically owe a duty. But in the circumstances of this case, Justice Perlis confirmed that you look at the bigger picture to decide whether or not there is a special relationship. Did something change other than I'm a student at this school to establish something more so that there was a special relationship that did trigger a duty? 
And he found that there was. And, and I think there's a really important uh, line in his dissent that talks about whether or not there's a, in deciding whether or not there's a special relationship, it, quote, depends on reasons of principle or policy. And that's what the, the, the um, majority didn't look at. They didn't look at whether or not there were some principles of policy um, that should change the dynamic. Just because it was a student at a university doesn't mean that there's not another reason to impose a special relationship, and, but they refuse to look at anything beyond the narrow scope of she's a student at a university. And it's really interesting, um, just to, to support this, Justice Perlis talks about the Avilov case, and I think that's a really important case, because in that case, the California Supreme Court said that athlete or the school has universities, colleges and universities, have a duty to protect athletes on the field. In other words, when athletes are participating, the, the school has a duty to make sure no negligence happens that would hurt another, and it was in, this, in the Avila case, it was a student from another university who was participating in an athletic event, and that there was a special relationship there. So there was a duty in that case. And and the appellate court, the majority opinion, just sort of blew it off and said that, well, that's athletes, so it's different, and it doesn't apply here. And, and my question is, and, and Justice Phil sort of articulated it too, well, how can you protect athletes, but not actual students? How is a sporting event less important than actual matriculation and, you know, being in class and studying? So it's kind of, I think that to me is a, is really the heart of where Justice Perlis was going. Also, another thing that, that Justice Perlis referenced is California Constitution Article 1, Section 28A7. And that provision actually is an expression, a constitutional provision stating that students at every level of educational institutions, including colleges and universities, have an expectation and a right to safety while they're on campus. And the courts have, and even the Supreme Court has said that that's not a basis for a private right of action, but it's certainly a basis for a policy principle that should be applied where they, the university promises safety and then doesn't deliver on it. And I think that's really critical. And the majority opinion never even discussed it, never cited it, never talked about it. So I think that's really something critical in in Justice Perlis's dissent, as as was his reference to restatement of third court, which uh, section 40, which also talked about how important when that when a university makes promises to the students about the safety on campus and they don't fulfill those promises, you know, that's the violation. Of, or they create the space of special relationship, and when they don't fulfill it, that violates the special relationship and imposes a duty. Another really important part of Justice Perlis's discussion was that, and, and, and I know we're going to talk about it a little more, was that it, UCLA already had these programs in place. So there was no burden. Imposing a duty, in a special relationship duty in this context, 
would not have imposed a burden on UCLA. So there's no reason to not do it. You know, they promised it, they didn't deliver it, and and they should be responsible for it. Moving into, into your amicus brief and before getting into the, the arguments specifically, um, I just wanted to discuss a, a sort of historical arc that, uh, that you follow in, in couching the, this question of, of potential tort duty in, in this case, starting um, from the earlier 20th century notion that that uh, colleges were in loco parentis, subbing in for the role of parents for, for the students that were there and so had um, perhaps were seen to have more responsibility to keep them safe. Um, but as you write, that, that gave way um, around the time of the 60s when campus protests became more common, the civil rights era um, dawned um, to a less paternalistic environment um, that, that followed. And, and, and in, that, um, in that environment, tort um, liability perhaps came became less common, or, or the notion of colleges being uh, sort of ever responsible for their student safety became less vogue, I suppose, and 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 so that perhaps prevails until today. But another piece that that you reference is uh, there are uh, more commonly occurrences of violence on college campuses um, now, which perhaps bears on their responsibility colleges or their students. Um, can you just walk me through why you, you felt it was important to, to paint a historical context here and how those different uh, trends bear on the, the question before the court today? Well, and, and I think part of my job um, as an amicus uh, writer is, is to do things that the parties may not have the, the brief briefing ability to do in terms of the length, their length of the brief. They've got harder, more important issues to hit um, and may not be able to do it. And to give the court a different perspective, that's what amicus, amici do. And one of the things is to give us historical perspective. The parties probably don't have the room in their briefs to do it, but I think it's really important. And an amicus can, this is a perfect thing for amicus to do. In this context, what happened is that, as you describe it, it was a good way to put it, there was an arc. Um, I sort of think of it as a pendulum swinging. Back in the early 20th century, the pendulum was way over on one side saying, you know, we are your parents while you're at this university and we get to tell you what to do. Now, the cases back then were literally that, is we have the right to tell you what to do. And there weren't a lot of cases in terms of... Um, you're now responsible if we get hurt. <laughs> there were there weren't personal injury cases that arose out of that doctrine, but it was the in loco parentis, and and we get to tell you what to do. And in the in the student in the campus um, rebellions of the '60s, that went away because the schools were forced to opt out of that data, and it and the pendulum swung to the extreme opposite direction where it's, okay, we can't tell you what to do, we're not responsible for you. So we don't have any liability when bad things happen. And that's where some of the cases cited by the majority at the Court of Appeal in Rosen um, got their analysis. And in those cases, it was like there'd be wild parties at the dorm with drinking and somebody would get raped. And the court said, you know what? University is not responsible for you. You guys are adults. 
you can do what you want, you put yourself in situations, and you're going to get hurt, and that's not their fault. So it went to the other extreme where it says, if we can't touch you, you can't touch us. It was sort of that kind of thing. And then with all the campus violence and the shootings, I think the pendulum started to swing back a little bit, and it's a little bit more analogous to the sort of balancing act that goes on where it's third-party criminal conduct in private or, you know, in public places that aren't universities or colleges, bars, restaurants, shopping centers. And it swung back to, well, you know what? You don't have an immunity for that. You, you, the university, have some responsibility if you are aware, if it's foreseeable that there's going to be violence, you have some duty to step in and stop that. You know, and, and just like third-party criminal activity in the, in the non-university context, it's all factually driven. Sometimes there's a duty and sometimes they're not. It depends on what they knew, how they knew it, and when they knew it, um, and what they could reasonably do about it. And so the other cases from other states were coming back to say, you know, we need, we need a medium, you know, spot here. We, we don't want either extreme, but there's a midpoint where responsibility should lie. And that's sort of why I put that historical perspective in there to show that and to, to give reassurance to the Supreme Court if they need it that yeah. Taking this approach is not crazy. It's not out of the, you know, out of the realm of what other states and other courts are thinking. And that's sort of why that was there. Now, if I'm reading your brief correctly, and you can correct me if, if I'm wrong here, it seems that you, you do agree with uh, the Court of Appeals majority in at least one aspect that perhaps it would be too broad of a rule to say that there's just a absolute duty that colleges owe their students to keep them safe at all times. Um, but but you, you do argue Justice Perlis's dissent that there should be more of a, a refined rule that in, in certain instances it may be the case that that duty is owed. Um, is that fair to say? And is one of those instances as here where, where UCLA is undertaking um, the the, the programs that are meant to to find and address potential threats on campus. That's exactly. I do completely agree with that. Um, I, I mean, I would love it as point of security if every <laughs> university had to keep every student safe in every context, of course. But that's it's not realistic, and no court's going to go there. So, but the real the reality here is these facts aren't the facts here created a different situation. It created a special relationship. They usually promoted itself on the basis of its campus safety. So, you know, and and, and then the, I think this is a really important fact, too. They actually charged for it. They increased student fees by 3% and over time up to 25% to pay for this program. So the students were paying for it. Don't they get something for their money? Shouldn't they get the protection that's being promised that they're paying for? So I think it, because of the circumstances here, it's a different situation than just, you know, a university who offers to teach you and does nothing more than that. They did way more than that here, and they should be responsible for it. And I think that's the, the, the flaw in the majority's opinion at the Court of Appeal. They didn't 
look at that perspective at all. As a, a fairly recent UCLA student myself, I can I can verify those campus safety fees are, are not neg- negligible. Um, they, no, they are really, they're not. Um, just one one follow up to that point. I, I'm certainly a, a tort layman, um, but mo- most of the the kind of factual inquiries tend to to center around a, a later question in the the lawsuit life cycle, right? The the question, the final sort of question of, of negligence, and and around the earlier question whether or not a, a, a duty is owed. Those are, you know, it's a question question of law, and and less often or. Um, fewer facts tend to go into that calculus, but as you're describing your argument for for duty here, it, it's it's fairly factually dependent. Um, it, is that uh, I guess does that sort of bleed together those two different questions, the the more threshold one of duty and the the one of negligence at, at all? I know, and it, and it's often very confusing to think about you know what facts relate to duty and what facts relate to breach of duty. Mm-hmm. And that's where the distinction is. And the, the California Supreme Court in its most recent duty decisions have made clear that we're not deciding specific facts. We're not going to decide whether these facts mean that there was a breach or even necessarily that there was a duty. We're going to talk about general circumstances and general legal principles and derive from that the answer to the question in this case. And that's what the court typically does. And they don't ever, they don't ever say that the foresee, foreseeability, for example, they never say this, yeah, it was definitely foreseeable in this case. They talk about it in general terms, but it's really difficult to articulate the distinction. Um, if you read the California Supreme Court's decision in Cabral and its decision in Kessner, they really articulate carefully what they do to decide whether or not there's a duty and how general their um, findings may be. But realistically, it always comes down, down to the facts in the case and how, how broad or narrow the duty may be that they're finding depends on the facts in, in the case. I think if you want a general principle for the circumstances we're talking about here, I think what the Supreme Court is likely to articulate is that a university or college has no absolute duty to guarantee the safety of their students. But if the student, if if they if they establish a special relationship with the student through promising, establishing a a, a violence prevention plan, um, promoting a violence a violence prevention plan. Um, and taking steps to make the students believe that they're going to be safer, then you're going to have to honor those obligations. And if you don't, it's a breach and you, you know, you're liable. So I think that it's going to be an articulation of generally, if you do something to establish a special relationship with regard to campus safety, you're going to have to do something about it. So it's, and this case is illustrative of that kind of general special relationship, negligent undertaking kind of duty. The court's not going to say if you don't do anything, you're going to be liable. They're not going to say that. So, you know, facts facts always control what, what the decision is in a particular case, but I think they're going to come up with sort of a generalized kind of distinction 
for between the universities who do nothing and universities who do something. Maybe just taking up a, a couple of counterarguments to the claim that there was negligent negligent undertaking here, whereby the school implemented measures meant to protect um, their students, and nonetheless this this attack occurred that seemingly could have been foreseen or, or prevented. Um, one of those counterarguments is doctrinal that um, for someone like Miss Rosen to to show duty based on negligent undertaking, she would need to demonstrate um, one that. I believe the undertaking made the victim, um, made her less safe, and and also that she, in fact, relied on, on the undertaking. For example, here, the campus safety protocol, you mentioned that uh, reliance could, could be presumed in certain instances, but more broadly, there's a, a policy concern raised by, by the regents and, and their Michi here that if you do find a duty for a negligent undertaking here, basically saying um, because the school undertook these safety um, precautions, it, it sort of extends their liability when those safety measures fail. Um, that would incentivize schools to not adopt um, safety measures. And so then in, in those cases, they certainly wouldn't catch um, anyone like like the perpetrator here. What, um, what, what are your responses to those uh, doctrinal and, and policy counterarguments? Well, there's, there's a couple things. First, um, Justice Perlis in his dissent in the Court of Appeal um, made a very important observation. And what he said is that, in relying, relying on the Elgato versus Tracks Bar and Grill case, which is a really interesting third-party criminal liability case uh, where it was a bar patron who got injured. Um, and what he he said is if if there's a high burden to protect, to try to protect from that that kind of third-party criminal activity, um, then there's they're not going to impose liability. It's just they're not going to do it. But if it's a low burden to actually provide the protection that was needed, then we are going to impose liability. It's sort of a balancing thing. It's a it's a spectrum. And a good example that Justice Perlis sort of refers to is. If you go to a bar and there's no security guards and you know there's no security guards, then it would be a very burdensome for that bar to have security guards, um, then we're not going to make them have security guards. But, and this is, that's a high burden, but the low burden is if they have security guards, then it's not asking a lot if they do their job and provide the protection that people assume security guards will provide. And if they're negligent in doing that, then that's a, you had a low burden. You didn't have to do a lot. You already had the guards there. So the fact that they didn't act correctly shouldn't protect you. And I think it's sort of the same thing here. If a school, a university, college is going to represent that they have campus safety issues covered, we got you, we got you covered. We've got campus safety programs in place. And we're going to protect you. It's a low burden. They have to do it then. <laughs> you have to do it. Um, now, a school that doesn't have any safety protections, doesn't have guards, doesn't have these programs, and they don't promote themselves as having these programs, they're absolutely entitled to do that. And under that kind of Delgado analysis, they're not going to be required to do it if they didn't otherwise do it. Now, 
the real key here is parents and students are more and more concerned about campus safety all the time. They do make decisions as, with that as a factor in where they want their kids to go. So colleges across the country have recognized that this is an important marketing issue to get students to come to their schools, to get the top-rated, best students they can get. They need to assure them that there is campus safety protocol. So it's in their own best interest to do it. And if they don't want to do it, they don't have to. But then they're not going to get the best students. So it's really their choice in how they want to operate their business. But the incentive is there to do it if they want to get the best kind of students. And I think, you know, that's, that's why UCLA did this. And that's why they charge money to do it, so they can do it. So they're going to be responsible if they... I think it's a really easy equation to understand. And I don't... I, I'm baffled by the Court of Appeals majority decision because they didn't seem to get that. Okay. Um, now this might be a, a, a bit in, in the weeds, but um, you, you say that there are sort of separate independent bases for duty created by, by these programs adopted by the school to uh, engender student safety, that that such programs, one, create duty based on negligent undertaking, that if they undertake the programs, they must do so non-negligently, but also that a special relationship by virtue of them is created. Uh, I guess, what, what, what where's the dividing line between those two types of duty? And do they exist independently, both supported uh, by the actions of the school to adopt um measures and protocols meant to, to keep folks safe? Yeah, I, I know that it's Justice Perlis's, um dissent sort of blurred the two. He actually didn't find that there was necessarily a negligent undertaking per se, but that by undertaking these programs and by charging for them and by marketing them and promoting them, that creates a special relationship. In other words, he took a much broader view of what a special, how a special relationship can be established, and that's sort of what we argued in our amicus brief too. That that the special relationship analysis is not as narrow and confined and pinpoint as the majority's opinion at the Court of Appeal. That it's a broader concept, and that the negligent undertaking type of elements support the public policy that warrants imposition of a special relationship. So even if you don't meet the, the detailed specific elements of a negligent undertaking in terms of especially the reliance, which I still think, you know, it can be presumed, um, but even if it's not, even if you can't establish the specific negligent undertaking kind of negligence in, a ne- in the analysis of what constitutes a special relationship, those kind of elements play a part in establish the public policy. I think that's where both he went and, and we did in our amicus brief. One, one more legal point. The, the Court of Appeals majority did cite what seems to be fairly clear precedent that you referenced earlier, that there's a, a duty that schools have up to um, the end of high school and, and, and then post-secondary education institutions no longer have the, a general tort duty. That, that all seems fairly straightforward um, in terms of precedential authority. Is, is the, the the response to that 
setting you're relying on the case you referenced a vila or saying that that those more broad statements in the precedent about no general duty um are, don't really speak to an instance like this where the facts make it a little muddier what's the best way to to to, to argue against um the precedent that the the majority there and and uh, the regents and the MBG uh, have cited what you said, all those elements, I think, come into play, that, that the law is changing, it's recognizing, like, like Avila did, that um, that there are duties, there are responsibilities, there are a lot of out-of-state cases that I cited in my amicus brief where courts have been saying that now with campus violence and the problems that have been happening, that schools have to take some action. They can't just, you know, sit on their hands and, and think everything's okay. Um, and and just the, the public policy issues that were raised in this case, I think, established that this is the kind of circumstance where a duty should be imposed. That because of the, again, it goes back to what Justice Perlis was talking about, the public policy principles, as well as the, the California constitutional provision. I mean, that, is, that says that it is the public policy of the state that students at all levels of educational institutions, including colleges and universities, are entitled to safety. So even if that's not individually enforceable in a particular case, it certainly establishes a public policy that supports imposition of liability where, you know, given all these other factors, that creates a duty, a special relationship duty between a university and a student. So I think it's it's a lot of different factors, but I think, and, and I haven't had a chance to listen to the the Supreme Court oral arguments on this case, um, but I spoke with Chuck Delario, who's a brilliant appellate specialist, who did the briefing in this case, and um, who argued it at the at the Supreme Court. And he said that the the court was, you know, was very amenable to his argument. When UCLA's attorney got up, one of the the justices asked him, are you saying that there should never, under any circumstances, be any duty on a university? And he answered yes. Mm-hmm. And Chuck's impression was that several of the justices were literally shocked by that position, that there could never, under any circumstances, be any any duty imposed on the university in this context. And I think that is is not a good position to take when you're dealing with a situation like this. So it's going to be really interesting to see what the Supreme Court does with this. I really think their opinion is going to fall very much in line with Justice Perlis's dissent. I'm certainly hoping that's the result, but I actually think that that's where they're going to go based on their recent duty decisions. They don't go they don't go crazy. They're not a Roseburg court on duty, but they're much, much more inclined to find a duty, um, but a narrow one in a lot of circumstances. So I think, I think, I think we're in a good position. Okay, then, and just one last one, um, raising a, just a couple of other countervailing policy concerns raised by the regents and Emmy Chen on the other side here. One being, I suppose, the overall cost. It, it would be pretty burdensome to to ensure student safety um, in in all instances um, to prevent something um, like like this. Um, and I suppose the other policy consideration 
is one about student privacy and the relationship between schools and students. Um, the, the word that it would become more paternalistic, reverting back to sort of the in local parentis model um, that was uh, shook off by students a generation ago. Um, I assume you are, are less concerned about uh, those uh, those considerations. What uh, are your counter arguments on as to those? Well, as to the first one, we sort of covered that a little bit in terms of if the burden if the burden is too high, liability won't be imposed. If the burden is low, then you should be subject to liability, and that's really the you know the Delgado analysis again. In UCLA, the burden was low because they had these plans. These programs in place, they were they knew what to do. They knew how to handle it. Um, so I, I the cost the cost and the burden is there, and I think you have to. I mean, it's already been taken care of at UCLA anyway, and I think you have to focus there. That argument is really trying to focus on the difference between the establishment of a program and the negligent implementation of the program. And the negligent implementation of the program is a question of breach, and that's for the jury. The jury's going to decide, you know, did they had this program. Was this guy such an outlier that there was no way that UCLA could reasonably have discovered the problem under its program and the way it was established and the safety goals it had to find this guy and prevent prevent him from acting out. Now, remember that the foreseeability issues are never ever um, are never ever related to foreseeing a particular injury to a particular person. That's not what the duty analysis entails. It entails seeing whether or not there could be could be some kind of incident in which somebody got hurt. So it's going to be for the jury to decide whether, given those parameters in this case, did they do what they could have done. And maybe it was and maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But that's going to be for the jury to decide after we established that there was some kind of duty. On, on the second policy argument that you've been talking about, and, you know, are we going to throw back to in loco parentis and is this a problem? And what about student privacy? The, those, UCLA made all those arguments and the Nisi made those arguments. The problem with that is all, all campuses have student disciplinary rules and those are expressed as part of the enrollment agreement. And so students have to comply with those rules. If they do, no problem. We're good. If they don't, then the, the university has reserved to itself the right to do something about it. And the something they can do about it is they can make you change your dorm. They can make you not live on campus at all if you're disruptive and creating problems. If you're just, you know, creating problems in class, they can bar you from class. They can suspend you. They can throw you out. So they have tools to deal with disruptive students, they have to have tools to deal with disruptive students because their goal is to teach. And if disruptive students are making it impossible to do that and making it impossible for students to learn, something has to be done. Whether it's violence or not, they have the powers to make changes and make sure 
things go smoothly. So they have those powers anyway. And the fact that they can exercise those powers just means that the students have to follow the rules. And if they don't, the school gets to do something about it. So I don't see that that it's a huge privacy issue or a huge burden. Um, it's not a confinement. It's, you know, you get to have rules. It's just like workplace rules. You have to behave a certain way in the workplace, and if you don't, you can get fired. So I, I just don't see that as a very compelling basis for saying that we don't have to address any threat to anybody at any time under any circumstances. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll, we'll find out soon enough here if the California Supreme Court feels the same way that you do, but we can leave it there um, for now. Sharon Arkin of the Arkin Law Firm, thanks so much for being so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. And with that, our show for January 12th is complete. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.